Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Joshua D. Schindel. Joshua is Professor of Theology at Yellowstone Theological Institute, which is located in Bozeman in beautiful Montana. And we're talking to Joshua today about his great new book, The Necessity of Christ's Satisfaction, a study of the Reformed scholastic theologians William Twiss, and John Owen. And this book has just been published by Brill in their very, very good series, Studies in Reformed Theology. Joshua, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for your time and congratulations on your book. Thanks, Crawford. Thanks for uh, the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be uh, to be speaking with you today. Um, I'm really looking forward to the, the conversation, or, or as we say uh, here in my neck of the words to uh, to jaw jacking about this this topic. To, so to jaw jacking. This is going to be educational jaw-jacking. for me. Great. Yeah. Just feel free to drop in those little uh, local allusions. <laughs> I'll appreciate that and keep a note. Um, Joshua, this is a a, a very important book uh, on a very very big topic. This is your first academic monograph, if I'm correct. That's how, correct. How did you make your way into theology? make your way from a general appreciation of theology to this question, turn this question into a thesis for a PhD, and then eventually to turn that project into the book we're talking about today. What's the background to the project? Well, as as I'm sure uh, you know, having worked on, on much bigger projects uh, than even this one, but even these, these littler projects, projects have probably several stories that could be told um, about their origin and, and development. Um, I suppose in terms of my own interests in general in theology, I, um, I grew up as the son of a, 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 a pastor here in a little town in Montana, uh, Cascade, Montana. And so from fairly early age was, uh, was interested in uh, theology, things of the Bible, things of church. Um, and that kind of, you know, carried on with me, uh, throughout my, my teen years 
in in my late teen years, I got very interested in reform theology, um, or at least uh, what was what was being called reform theology or, or Calvinist uh, theology um, at the, at the time, and so. I started thinking about what uh, what I wanted to to do with my life in my late teens, early twenties, and and um, over a, a period, just thought, you know, I'm really interested in pursuing this uh, theology thing, philosophy, and so um, I was actually over visiting the Labrie there in the south of England. Uh, and um, and I, I just happened to go at a time when one of the workers uh, there was Stefan Lindholm, who uh, at the at that time was working on his PhD uh, through the University of Stavanger, I believe it was at the time, um, under Sebastian Redman, whom, as you know, uh, had had uh, written um, his uh, doctoral dissertation on John Owen, on John Owen's theological methodology. So I, I got to talking with uh, uh, Stefan Lindholm when I was over there, and uh, he introduced me to the Reformed Orthodox and that kind of whole period of late 16th century through 17th century Reformed writings, which I was utterly unfamiliar with. And uh, and he encouraged me. He said, "If you're if you're really interested in in studying theology and doing this more, go to uh, Calvin College, as it was at the time, now Calvin University, um, and and do philosophy, which I was very happy to do." So, um, as I say in the in the preface of the book, it was also while I was at Labrie, I was having tea out on the lawn, and uh, and I overheard. Stefan Lindholm talked with another worker there uh, who was there at the time. Uh, he's no longer there, Andrew um, Fellow. And um, they were discussing a, a difference, a, a different take on the necessity of, of Christ's satisfaction. Although I don't remember if they used those terms at the time, but a difference of take between John Calvin and John Owen. And, you know, in my understanding at the time of Reformed theology, Reformed theology was this kind of monolithic thing uh, that went from its beginnings in John Calvin and John Owen to Jonathan Edwards uh, to the Princeton theologians. You know, that was about all that I knew <laughs> at the time. And so um, so that, that struck me as um, odd and maybe even a little troubling that there's this dispute on the atonement of Christ amongst Reformed theologians. It, it sort of blew some of my categories. So anyways, I tucked that in the back of my mind as something to look into later. So I went off to Calvin and, and studied philosophy in the classics there and then um, did a master's thesis at, at uh, Westminster Seminary in, in California on John Owen and his Socinian writings. And that's where I was first uh, sort of introduced to um, John Owen's um, dissertation on divine justice, his Diatriba. And uh, while I was reading that, paying particular attention to his writings on Socinianism uh, or, or from Socinus and from some of the Socinians, uh, I discovered that it wasn't just Calvin with whom he disagreed, but some others like William Twiss and Samuel Rutherford. And so again, I sort of tucked that in the back of my mind. 
I originally began talking with my, my doctoral supervisor while I was still at Westminster. I began talking with him about possible projects. Uh, I should say who would become my doctoral um, advisor. He, he wasn't at the time. But I, I, uh, I began talking about possible projects, and he thought we should go in the, the direction of uh, writing something on Socinus and uh, Socinianism. Which, um, in some of the the literature on kind of the intellectual development of the early modern period, Socinianism got the short end of the stick, and he he sort of had a sense that it was a bigger player in some of that development uh, than than the traditional story had it. And so I I started looking into that, and I I fairly quickly thought. After after reading uh, Socinus in particular, and then and some others, some of the English Socinians like um, John Crellius uh, and and um, John Biddle and some of those f- folks, I, I I quickly thought, you know, I want to write a dissertation on someone or some persons whom I can really learn from the theological trade, really learn the theological trade. And it struck me, now this is an evaluative judgment, um, not supposed to make these, I suppose, as a historian, but it struck me um, that Socinus was not a very good thinker. Uh, he was not a very good theological thinker. He was humanistically trained um, and and um, somewhat of a, a decent Renaissance thinker, as it were, but not a not a very good theological thinker in my in my own estimation. And so I thought, I don't know that I want to write uh, at length on Socinus. And so I I pulled out uh, from my back pocket uh, these these questions that I had sort of developed um, over reading Owen's uh, Diatriba. And um, as I started looking at it uh, to make a a short story long as I started looking at the uh, the the text and then started reading more of William Twist and Samuel Rutherford, I thought uh, I originally had a, a chapter uh, uh, on Samuel Rutherford, but I thought he was pretty much saying the same thing as William Twist. He'd written uh, what about uh, fifteen years or something like that after William Twist's um, first edition, and. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll just focus on William Twist and, and John Owen. So that's sort of the development. Uh, and I should add, by the way, I have a, a friend who's right now finishing up his PhD on Samuel Rutherford on the question of satisfaction. He assures me that Samuel Rutherford has has his own um, kind of d- distinctives to add to the conversation. So I may have been mistaken on that on that point. But um, yeah, that's sort of how how the project uh, developed for me. Great, Joshua. So you, you, you take us there to the idea of Christ's atonement as being central to what this project is all about. And often, I suppose, when people who have a knowledge of Reformed theology in this period think about questions relating to the atonement, it's about its extent, isn't it? And there's various positions taken in that period. But your book's about a much more fundamental question about its necessity. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, even when you look 
a lot of the the literature on the atonement, uh, especially when it comes to Reformed or, or Calvinist writings of the early modern period, there's a lot of uh, secondary literature on the extent of the atonement, debates over the extent. What I discovered when I began looking into into this question of the necessity of the satis- uh, satisfaction of Christ, um, and I suppose I, I ought to make a, a quick caveat comment here about I'll, I'll, I'm sure I will slip in between using atonement and satisfaction um, in this interview. Um, strictly speaking, the reform didn't talk about atonement. That's just not a term that they use. So to avoid uh, avoid anachronism, I'll, I'll try to uh, keep with satisfaction. But inevitably, I'll slip, I'm sure. Um so when I started looking into this question of the necessity of satisfaction, I found that actually the Reformed debated this question um, extensively, if you'll excuse the pun, um, as well. And so it became uh, obvious to me that that um, these two questions were debated, uh, the extent of the atonement, for whom did Christ die, and the, and the nature of the atonement, or... Um, whether it is a satisfaction um, in the first place, and that the the Reformed were debating the Socinians in particular on that point, and then whether or not it's necessary. And they debated uh, the Socinians, they debated the Remonstrants, they, de- they debated the uh, fellow uh, fellow Reformed theologians on, on that particular question. So um, I was actually quite surprised to see the uh, the extensiveness of of the reform debates on this on this topic. Um, it's also, I think, worth exploring further. Um, one could probably write a monograph, not probably one could write a monograph on the development of the discussion, in particular, um, from from the conversations between John Calvin and Lilius Socinus uh, in the the late uh, 16th century, all the way right through the the 17th century, um, there's a a development that occurs, I think, within uh, the Reformed Orthodox response that has some doctrinal implications um, on, on the question of the necessity of the satisfaction. So that, that could be traced. Uh, I think uh, it would be really enlightening if, if one were to do that. But that wasn't my project, so I, um, I, I didn't do that. So Joshua, you're making a distinction there between satisfaction as the language of our early modern subjects and atonement as one of the terms that's related to that idea of satisfaction in more recent discussion. So just in case we're confusing any listeners, what exactly do we mean by satisfaction? That's a, that's a great question and one that's liable to get me into trouble. Um, because as you read both in the uh, patristics, in the medieval period, and in the uh, early modern period, there are different takes on what exactly satisfaction is. So what I what I try to do in the book, uh, in order not to get too bogged down, um, is I, I say, for the most part, I think it's it's generally true to say that 
because of the way the Bible speaks about the work of Christ, one of the, one of the aspects of the work of Christ is the payment of a debt. This type of language is used in scripture and then reflected on in the patristic period, medieval period, early modern period. And it's, it's one of the ways in which uh, all of the theologians in those periods talk about the work of Christ and what it accomplishes. So I say um, without, without specifying what exactly the debt is, or how exactly it gets paid, um, all that I mean by satisfaction in this book is that there is something like a debt and, uh, and Christ's work uh, accomplishes something like a repayment of it. Atonement um, in the modern period and into our own day, atonement sometimes is used uh, to, to signify that. Um, uh, that is to say, satisfaction, it's a it's sort of a synonym of uh, satisfaction. Um, but atonement can also be used in our own time as um, encompassing sort of the whole of salvation. Um, so it's, it's um, more akin to reconciliation with God uh, or union with God, uh, reunion, as it were. So um, that's how I try to, to differentiate those terms uh, in, the, in the book. And, and I, I think if I was successful, at least, I, I avoided uh, the use of the term atonement almost entirely and stuck with satisfaction. Again, by which I, I simply meant um, that there was a debt that sinners incurred on account of their sin and which Christ uh, in some way or in, in, uh, in a manner of speaking repays, as it were. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Is that helpful? Uh, that's helpful, Joshua, yeah. And, and your book project is really exploring why there is a conversation between theologians in the 17th century principally, but also a, a conversation that's set up by previous discussions, stretching back several centuries, many centuries. But it's a conversation about whether the satisfaction was necessary or not. So could, could, you, could you talk us through why some perfectly orthodox reform thinkers might have suggested the satisfaction was not necessary. What would they have meant? You parse this quite carefully in the book, but what would they have meant when they made that kind of claim? Yeah. This was probably the, the, the place um, 
or the, the question by which I, I learned the most, actually, in my, in my readings. Um, maybe I'll, I'll come to that uh, by way of, of some of the discussions that take place uh, going all the way back to Augustine. And, and you can actually trace elements of this question further back than Augustine. Um, I've, I've elsewhere um, trace them uh, back to like St. Irenaeus, for example, um, certainly in Athanasius as well. But Augustine um, was, was so important, as we, all, as we all know, for the development of um, Western Latin Christianity and, and theology and, um, and was, was cited right through the Middle, um, middle Ages. So um, <clears throat> the medieval scholastic tradition in particular so Augustine, in his his book uh, De Trinitate, book thirteen, chapter ten, he offers up a sort of argument where he, um, in discussing the work of Christ on our behalf, he he offers up an argument um, where God seems to be sort of on the horns of a dilemma. Either God could save fallen humanity sort of only in this way, by the incarnation. It had to be by the incarnation, by the suffering death of the God-man. Or he could have saved fallen humanity um, in some other way. Now, if you say that he could only save humanity in this way, by the suffering death, the incarnation, suffering death, resurrection of Christ, then you seem to be uh, denying his omnipotence. We'll probably come back to that more in a moment, but you seem to be denying his omnipotence. If you say there were other ways of saving humanity, then by the the gruesome, you know, suffering and death of his only son, then you seem to be denying his wisdom. I mean, surely this is not the path that wisdom would choose if there were other paths available. And so it would seem that either God is not all powerful or he is not all uh, wise. And uh, this kind of phrasing of the question is taken up in the medieval period. Uh, it is sort of formalized into an argument by Anselm in his Curdeus Homo. Um, and then it is uh, taken up particularly by Peter Lombard in his sentences, uh, book three, and he deals with it also in book one. And so it then gets passed into the, the commentorial uh, tradition. Um, so I, I try to trace that um, in, in chapter uh, three and, and show not so much a development, because I'm not actually arguing a developmental thesis. I try to be clear about that in the book, but I just try to show how certain distinctions sort of uh, make their way into the discussion, distinctions which the medievals found helpful for trying to parse this, and that those distinctions then are taken up by the, the Reformed Orthodox in their own discussions. So that's kind of the... the um, issue that the, these Reformed Orthodox people are dealing with. Either God is unwise or he's not all-powerful. So for those who of the Reformed Orthodox who say, actually, the, the, um, the question whether God 
could have saved humanity by some other way than by the satisfaction of Christ, um, those who answer that, yes, God could have saved humanity by some other way, um, at least as I trace it in, in uh, William Twiss, what's really at stake is um, our, our view of God. First of all, with regards to his uh, omnipotence, can we really claim that he's all-powerful? And then Twist develops several other arguments um, which say, if we say this is the only way that God could um, save fallen humanity, we're actually, we're actually um, and probably accidentally, uh, introducing into our, our doctrine of God um, that he is able to sin. It's a, it's a really very um, non-intuitive, but I think a pretty powerful argument, one that Owen had to contend with uh, at, at great length. Um, I, I could uh, go on to that argument, but now I feel like I'm um, maybe outrunning the question that you originally asked. So, Well, Joshua, you very helpfully took us up to John Owen there, and Owen is, with twists, one of the subjects of your book, isn't he? And as you mentioned in the book, Owen changes his view somewhat in thinking about this question. So tell us a little bit about Owen as a, almost as an evolutionary figure in this conversation as a person who's moving from one view to a slightly different view. Yeah, there are probably a number of things that I could say on that point. Um, what I found interesting is Owen was not the only one to have changed his mind on this issue. There were other um, fairly influential figures that round about this same time also changed their mind. Uh, I mentioned in the book Richard Baxter as being one of them, who, um, you know, we for, don't, for we all don't of... mention his name very much in this show, Joshua. <laughs> yeah, that's I can imagine. So <laughs> I was about to say for all for all his disputes with uh, with Owen, um, he he seems to have followed Owen on on this, even in terms of the path he takes. So it's um, two years after Owen's first publication of the Death of Death. Um, Richard Baxter comes out with um, with essentially the same position as, as Owen, which was essentially the same position as Twist, that it was not necessary. Two years after Owen comes out with um, his, his diatriba, Baxter comes out with his own um, account in which he's changed his mind and uh, follows Owen again. I don't know that he would have admitted to that, but um, but that's sort of the the publication record at least. Um, so, anyways, Owen Owen, I think was a really um, important figure in this. After Owen, I found that the majority of the Reformed Orthodox writers that I read both in um, England and also on the continent followed, uh, if not Owen's argumentation, then sort of his reasoning that we, we better say this is the only way that God could save sinners because of the Socinians. So that's sort of the case that Owen, Owen makes. He essentially, he, he says in his, um, I think it's to, to the reader, 
of his diatriba that he had at one point, you know, taken up the position of twist and denied uh, that there was any kind of necessity um, that God saved fallen humanity by the work of uh, Christ. But he says, I've had some time to consider it. And especially with the, the, the rise of the problem of Socinianism in the early 1650s, he, he says, we don't want to establish a sort of halfway house between Reformed Orthodoxy and the Socinians, which is what he thought William Twist and Sam Rutherford and others were doing. Um, so, so he changes his mind. He doesn't say too much more about the change of his mind, but he, he does say that much. And then after Owen, it seems like his, his argumentation and his reasons for, for, um, for wanting to affirm that this was the only way um, are taken up in the Reformed Orthodox. So again, I think um, you know, one, one could probably write on, on that kind of development. Uh, there's a, there definitely seems to be a, a shift. Um, so Owen's really important for, for that reason. Um, his, his Diatriba is such an, an interesting work. Um, I should say, if you look at, at my sort of table of contents and then look at the way that, um, Owen's writings are organized, you'll, you'll see quite a bit of a difference. And one of the reasons for that is, uh, as, as I note in the book, there, there are um, Owen approaches his subject with a different emphasis, I think, and a different style uh, than someone like William Twist. Um, so maybe I'll make a, a quick comment about that. Uh, William Twist is much more scholastic, um, both in his training, but also then in in his writings. It comes out he's he's um, he organizes his material in a in a very scholastic fashion. Now it's been noted, of course, that that Owen does um, the same, particularly with his earlier writings. Um, probably when he was, you know, closer to his school days, um, he he organizes them in a in a more scholastic fashion. By the time he gets to writing the Diatriba, um, I think Carl Truman has has mentioned this too. His his style is a little bit more in the um, in in the renaissance strain of things renaissance humanism um and and so he organizes his material for the diatriba very differently than than does twist so one of the one of the things that i didn't want to do in this work was simply give a summary of william twist and john owen part of the reason for that was because i thought if i if I give Twiss's uh, kind of four principal arguments and and go into detail about what he means by them, and then follow with a summary of Owen's diatriba, it, it'd be very easy to miss the way in which Owen actually responds to Twiss. So I thought I thought um, a, a real comparison of the two required a little bit more of um, an analytic approach on on my part, where I was sort of taking Owen apart and, um, and trying to reconfigure, um, his, his writings in a way, 
uh, that made explicit his response to Twist because I, I do think he actually gets around uh, to responding to William Twist. Um, he he just he does it in sort of roundabout ways. Um, I'm remembering a a comment by um, Paul Helm. He made it originally in in uh, one of his blog posts um, on uh, Helm's Deep, I think is what his blog's called. But I, I think it worked its way into his book on uh, Calvin's ideas, maybe. Anyways, I'm forgetting the exact reference. But, he, but Helm says, you know, one of the problems with Owen's Diatriba is that it, it dies the death of a thousand qualifications, as it were. So, um, so I, I tried to organize it just a little bit differently so you could see the uh, you you could compare uh the, re- the responses um i think that, that that's one of the great things about the book joshua is the way in which you show owen responding both to an agenda set by sassinianism and by resp- and by earlier formulations of reformed theology in relation to people like like Twist, Rutherford, and, and and others, it's a super book. It's incredibly learned. You deal with sources in multiple languages. You pull together uh, a conversation that stretches back centuries in a very in a very straightforward, very light way. It's very accessible, um, and yet it's it's dealing with such deep and significant issues. And as, as you as you explain in the book and in conversation as well, issues that require a huge amount of nuance uh, and careful thought. Uh, as to how to avoid the horns of that dilemma that Augustine sets up all those centuries earlier. Well, Joshua, congratulations on the book, The Necessity of Christ's Satisfaction, a study of the reformed scholastic theologians William Twist and John Owen, published by Brill. What can we hope to read from you next? Thank you. Thanks for the congratulations. Um, you know, this this uh, position that I hold as... Um, at, at Yellowstone Theological Institute has kept me pretty busy with teaching. So I have, I have it in mind uh, to continue work on William Twist. I think he's a, a figure um, th- that, that more study could be, could be uh, uh, done on. And so I sort of have that in mind. I've been working towards um, a bigger project on, on William Twist. In the meantime, uh, I have written a couple of smaller um, pieces and article that's under review right now on uh, nature and grace issues in early modern reformed uh, theology uh, that uh, if accepted will come out uh, later this spring uh, a piece on reformed scholasticism uh, for Matthew Barrett's a little online publication credo which will come out uh, I think here fairly soon and then a um, an entry for the uh, reception of, uh, what is it, the Encyclopedia of, of Biblical Reception on uh, Paradise in the Reformation period. So that was kind of a fun one to do. Uh, I'm not sure when that's going to come out. But that's what I've been working on of recent. Well, that sounds fantastic. Um, who, who doesn't love writing about paradise? Uh, what, what, yeah, what a great yeah, topic. Yeah, um, especially right. with Montana, you just have to look out the window and describe what you see. Um, <laughs> That's Joshua, about right. It's been great having you in the show today, Joshua. Um, it's a great book. I encourage anyone interested in Twist or Owen, or indeed Reformed scholastic theology in this period, to take a to take a look at it. The Necessity of Christ's Satisfaction: A Study of the Reformed Scholastic Theologians, William Twist and John Owen, just published by Brill. 
in their excellent series, Studies in Reformed Theology. Um, Joshua, thanks for your time today. Um, thanks to everyone else for tuning in uh, and listening. Uh, I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.